So today we're going to hopefully finish uh, verses 25 and 26, and then the next topic will be getting us back into Acts 20, where this all started. What we've been doing during this whole time is defining the church, the ministries of the church, the, the com composition of the church, the leadership of the church, the message of the church, the duties of the church, and all of those things we've gone over and over a bit. That you would think would be sort of baseline for biblical Christianity. And during this process, I have been contending that Christendom is actually a, not Christianity, but a massive um, departure from what the biblical definition of the church is. So if someone would be told pretty well anywhere in the world, particularly in Western civilization, well, you should go to church, and that would be better for you, then they would think, well, I should go to one of these buildings with an organized religion going on that's called Christian, and it could be Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian or Baptist or United Methodist or Unitarian or, uh, or anything else. It could be anything, but if it's a building and it maybe has the right decor or a cross or whatever, there's your church. So you, you go to church. But my contention is that that's not the biblical definition of the church, never has been. And um, that most of the time when people go to church, they are in fellowship with mostly unbelievers. And how, how, do, how dare I say such a thing as that? It seems rather audacious. Is that the right word? I think it is. Um, well, I say that based on, since 1992, publishing Critical Issues Commentary, sending it to thousands of people. And most people who are converted, whatever church they were in, have trouble finding other Christians to fellowship with. Even if it's an evangelical church. Where's the other Christians who have a hunger for the word of God and want the gospel to be preached and share a common, uh, you know, working together to, in our common faith and common salvation. They're there, but it may be just a small group. And so that leads to the conclusion that what we know as the church is not the church defined biblically. Furthermore, to give you more evidence for that, because I'm summarizing now, I spent so many weeks on this, hopefully got something that can be summarized. In summary, you, someone might say, well, you're just an oddball trying to create some little cult or something because you can't agree with anybody. And so in response to that sort of potential criticism, I would say this. The definition I'm arguing for has been known in systematic the theology for centuries and it's taught, okay? And there's terms to describe the reality. And that definition of um, the church, those who are attached to the head, Jesus Christ, those who have a vital relationship with him by faith, who've turned to Christ, their sins are forgiven, who are born of God and are organically, and that's where that term comes from, 
joined to Christ, the head, into one another. That is often called the church militant. As far as those on earth that are in that state. And what is the church militant? They're the ones that are in the battle. The battle of the faith. And the church militant and where the church triumphant will be those who are also in that state at one point, but now have graduated to heaven. The church universal would be both. Those in heaven, those on the earth, all those who have known God, including Old Testament saints. The church universal. Um, the visible church would be what we actually see when people gather. But the, the, the invisible church would be those not that the people are actually invisible, but they're the ones who truly know God. The Lord knows those who are his. And it's a slightly different group because there are people with false assurance or people we may think are Christians, or maybe they do and they're not really. But God knows those who are here. So the invisible church would be those who truly know the Lord, wherever they are, whoever they are. And the visible church would be the people that gather. But those definitions I learned in seminary. So they're not extreme. I'm not some oddball thinking that way because that's how it's defined in systematic theology. But what about Christendom? What about the political church, the organized church that's so big and so entrenched for so many centuries that currently hardly anybody in a lot of the places are even part of the invisible church? Admittedly so. And it would be such a thing that if they're converted, they actually leave the church to go find a church. That's hardly commented upon. Yes, go ahead, brother. Hold on here. Go ahead. I need to ask you a question. And ever since we started on this institutional church, I, I questioned this, but I was afraid to ask. But I'm going to ask you now. Okay. <clears throat> You used an example of a person who somebody says, oh, well, you should go to church. And then they look at these buildings and they choose uh, this church, that church, and, and, and they go. I, could you make an argument that it would be better for that person to not even get involved in the church? Or is it better for a person and for society, one could make the argument that, well, he goes to church, he's a good citizen, he's doing this, he's doing that, and then leave it up to God to okay. move him from this dominion to that dominion. Okay, let me answer that good question. I would say it's a backwards question. I wouldn't just tell somebody to go to church. I would preach the gospel to them. Okay. And uh, preaching the gospel to them wherever they may be, those who believe and are converted are going to want fellowship. Now you're dealing with something different. If you're just see, seeing uh, Gene Citizen or John Citizen out there, you'd be better off in church. Well, you might be socially, but maybe not. Depends where you go. I have witnessed the people that go to Unitarian Universalist and they're almost militant there at that church against the gospel. 
So I, I wouldn't say you're necessarily be better off if you end up in Unitarian, Universalist, New Age, whatever. How's that better off? And if you actually think that is Christianity, then you're further from the gospel. So the theme would be to preach the gospel and those who believe and are baptized. And it does, the timing of baptism varies, especially in Christianized societies. But the point would be you're already then in fellowship with Christ and his people, even if you haven't met those people yet. I furthermore would say this, and I've noticed this from travels when I've been asked to go speak some places which I don't do anymore, but when I was younger, I used to travel. You find people of like precious faith who other, that, that you immediately know that's who they are and you immediately have a connection with and you have plenty to talk about even though there's going to be some differences. And that's what the invisible church is like. It, a few people become visible when the confession happens. So I wouldn't just say go to church to make you better. I don't... I don't see how that helps anybody, being how we can't define a church for just from society. All right. Now, what about uh, what? What do they call that? Uh, social lift or whatever. It's true that if someone is converted, there is a benefit socially to everybody around them when they quit self-destructing. Okay, and they talked about that also at seminary. That's objectively the case, not that people converted never have any problems. But if you're hearing the word of God and being taught and you're in fellowship, you're definitely better off sort of not being a problem person that's going to go rob a bank or whatever. Does that make sense? Yes. So I'm arguing that why don't we do what the Bible says right here, define the church biblically, define elders and deacons biblically, and define what the one another's biblically and do the things that Paul is saying or the other biblical authors that would be beneficial to Christians. The church does what's beneficial to Christians. And that certain things in any culture, in any time period in church history from Pentecost till the rapture are going to always benefit Christians anywhere, anytime. And, and those things are what we call means of grace. The word of God is purely taught. We practice the Lord's Supper, baptism, and Christian fellowship, and uh, we care for one another and, and things like that. It's going to be beneficial. And I would furthermore say the things that will enhance the vitality in an outward way, size, and impact of the visible church, regardless of whether there's any converts, are things that are going to strangle the biblical church, the organic church. Let me give you an example. As we watch, the, Diane and I like to watch baseball, so we've been watching playoffs. And so some billionaire is putting out this thing, he gets us. And then Jesus believed in his teammates or stuff like that. Okay, so the point is, because that's so widely uh, distributed and in the minds of people, it gives the idea that Jesus is some ordinary person who is nicer than others. 
It tells us nothing about Christ or Christianity. I would say that would be counterproductive. That's why I fought so vehemently against purpose-driven. It's designed for religious consumers, not for the church. And true biblical teaching has no place there because it would cause people to become disgusted with it. If you have the church defined biblically and you teach about averting God's wrath against sin, blood atonement, trusting Christ alone, and the things that the Bible teaches, the religious consumers will get disgusted and go find somewhere else. But the church bought by the blood of Jesus will grow and flourish and find hope and joy that is uh, not going to go away because life gets tough. The joy of the Holy Spirit doesn't go away when things are tough. Is that right? We need that right now. Amen. Yes, uh, Brother Rick. Yeah. Wow, I see. You know, like Brother Brian is saying, to go to a church where you're getting a false Jesus, that's a real problem. To watch TV and get this idea of he gets us and it's a false Jesus. And then there's other things too, like what is that thing called binge Jesus? Jerry B. Jenkins' son has that, what is that called? The Chosen. So you watch this and you're getting an idea of who Jesus is from this narrative and it's a dangerous narrative because they're putting words into Christ's mouth and you're getting an idea of who Christ is, not the biblical Jesus, but the Jesus that this Jenkins guy is giving us. I think it's all so dangerous, even if it seems good at some points. And what is that Jesus is calling, that book? They're just giving us an idea. Oh, yeah, no, that was worse because it's rather uh, mystical New Age. But it's Sarah, Sarah Young is not Jesus. Te- yeah, Sarah Young is not teaching biblical Christianity. Okay, let's get down to what we want to teach here. All right, 2 Timothy 2.25, we covered some of this. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I covered some of this, so let me give an overview and get down to the, where we need to be here. One of the things that we need to, and I think we ended on this, repentance is granted by God. It's not induced or enticed by making things, well, this fits what we were just saying, making Jesus seem appealing. He's your big brother and he'll give you a hand up. Or he gets us. Or he believes in you. No, Jesus doesn't believe in the sinner. He was, what does it say in John? He was not committing himself to man because he knew what was in man. Do you remember that verse? Okay, so that, that whole thing is totally misleading and unbiblical. But the truth when preached will offend everybody except for the ones that converts. Let me say it again. <laughs> It'll offend everybody other than the ones who are converted. Now, why would I say something like that? Well, I read the book of Acts. That, that was the reaction everywhere. And so then we have some um, verses about grant. By the way, the word grant, um, I think we talked about gentle. The correcting is a word for Correcting, like correcting children, only in this case it would be adults, but gently correcting like you would children because we come to the Lord, we don't know what's right and 
where you got to learn. So be kind as people are learning and growing. Uh, opposition here would be uh, to be opposed or adverse. Some, some translations have the middle, oppose themselves. Frankly, if you oppose the things of God, you're not doing yourself any favors either. Okay, that's how you get into trouble. Grant is ditto me. Ditto me is the word for give. Give. Grant, to give. And so the Bible teaches that repentance is a gift from God. Now, frankly, I've learned over the last 40 years that I know this is biblical. It's taught in many different places. And the people who oppose it the most are Christians. And um, I, I can't tell you how many people say, that's it, I'll never go to your church again. I'll never listen to you again if you teach repentance as a gift from God. Because we like to think we got a hold of something already inside the sinner and ginned it up and, and we did it. And then God has to accept what we did. But that's not how it's portrayed in the Bible. Now, this would be people already in the visible fellowship who are in opposition. And they aren't, this isn't just sort of minor opposition. This is pretty serious because look at the next verse. And they may come to their senses remembering that, oh, come on, go back. And they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, this isn't somebody who just had a couple questions. The old southern preacher, are you hearing me? <laughs> okay, that's a serious problem. And at the time, I was counseling a guy who was in very serious problem. And this was, he was sort of the, one of the cases that led me to search the scriptures and see I was doing it all wrong and thinking wrong, wrongly. The guy that I was helping who was our big mess. And I thought God told me to do everything I have to do to help the guy because I heard an inner voice, thought that was it. And I did that for years. I went to Mexico to rescue him uh, when he had a breakdown in Mexico. And he started beating on me. It's a miracle I got back from Mexico. Well, not much later, he brutally murdered his father with a knife. And he's in the St. Peter Hospital for the criminally insane. Now, that's who I was trying to help. And it could just as well have been me that he murdered. It could just as easily have been me. And it wasn't much longer after that happened, I, was, I ran across these verses in the mid-'80s, and I realized that what I was doing was dead wrong. Inner healing, casting demons out of people for therapy, all of that. And I switched in the mid-80s to gently correcting those in opposition, trusting God to grant repentance. Okay, it's a miracle. I wasn't the one knifed down when I was in my 30s. Could easily have happened. Um, it's pretty dangerous to, to do direct... Uh, interaction with the demons and somebody who's really a maniac. Um, that's what I was doing. And we see that narrated in Acts. Remember the sons of Sceva? They fled naked and wounded. 
The guy wasn't, they went crazy. So this is about gentle correction of the truth. God, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Notice what's not here, dear ones. God, I promise you, you will not harm yourself by believing what the Bible says. And if what the Bible says causes anger, just let it sit for a while and start meditating on whether it really says this, rather than trying to find some excuse why the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Okay, if Paul, did Paul have some secret process that would guarantee repentance? Did he try? He gets you. <laughs> would you take an oath to find your purpose? He might be happier. No. He kept teaching the truth, albeit gently, because God grants repentance, and when he does, it happens, and you know it happens, and the person is redeemed, and now they're part of the family of God, and then the instruction sinks in, and their life changes. And that's what we do, given the fact that we're not God, we can't see the invisible church, and we don't have a copy of the Lamb's Book of Life with us. Okay, go ahead, Harry. Yeah, I was going to mention in the Arminian-Calvinist debate, remember the Arminian's position is that they have to agree that humans are depraved. They come into this world with human depravity. They do believe that, but they believe that God gives a prevenient grace. Prevenient right. just means first. So that grace is extended to every human being universally. What texts like this show us, though, is that it, Notice it says, perhaps God may grant them repentance. The granting of the mercy and the grace isn't universally bestowed, it's particular. And another text that shows us that is Matthew 13, 11. Remember, that's where Jesus says, remember the disciples ask, why do you tell them in parables, but then you explain to us what the parables mean? And Jesus says to them, because to you it has been granted, ditto me, the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted or given. If Arminianism is correct, it's been granted to everyone. Yeah, and they, they not, say grace already given. Exactly. And, and so, so whether, they confuse common grace with saving grace. Exactly right. So whether or not you believe then is dependent upon you. Well, these texts like 2 Timothy 2.25, Matthew 13.11 show that no, the effectual grace, God granting the ability to repent and believe, is given to a particular group, not to everyone. And I think it's devastating against the Arminian position. Well, it obviously is, and it was against my position. And so I had to decide, I knew that when I accepted what the Bible said, I was going to lose a lot of friends. And I did. There were people that left and never came back because they wanted to, they just couldn't, can accept what the Bible says about this, including people that we had in for speakers, people I talked with, couldn't tolerate it, couldn't tolerate it, couldn't tolerate it. Man has to be in charge or we won't serve God. That's not what they say, that's just what they imply. Human ability. The, the human ability is not the gospel of hope. It's the gospel of a despair. Amen. And God... There are people that aren't even that aren't even necessarily finding their teaching in the Bible or realize the hopelessness of human ability. People trying to quit smoking, people trying to get off of chemicals. By the way, I don't mind saying this. 
It's not my calling card, but I was in bondage. I drank myself to sleep every night for 20 years and was functional all day long. Well, yesterday was October 21st, and that marks exactly 13 years of continual sobriety. Amen. Amen. So that, by the way, even there they said, even there in the, you know, the, I went through a treatment, learned an awful lot about how these things work, but God's the one who set me free. He did so through the words of the doctor. But frankly, they say only God. Our situation was hopeless and helpless, and we were going to die, and we knew it, but only God could possibly save us from this. Now they have a problem about who God is, but I didn't have that problem because I knew who he was. So dear ones, even things that aren't directly religious, like addiction, the, the help and hope comes, is given by God, not ginned up by some process. The people were so afraid when they left. After 30 days, you graduated, and everybody gave you, you know, well wishes and said things and comfort and hope and stuff. But they, many people went out of there shaking with fear that they would relapse and die. They knew that if they relapsed, they'd probably die. Um, so don't think that the sinner doesn't need grace granted but just needs to make better decisions that is not biblical and I don't care how many friends I lose I'm going to teach the Bible and I haven't heard one person yet just like Eric with his eschatology nobody has an answer what does this verse mean if everybody already has grace and that's what, I had somebody tell me that. It's a friend. Everybody already has grace. Well, then what's Paul talking about? How does a Christian in a church, visibly, they're part of the, they're right here, those in the church, that's who Timothy's dealing with, how can they be in such state that they're, they're in bondage to Satan if they already have grace? And when, if they already have grace, why is Paul saying God may grant them repentance? And the word grant did it means give. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Yes, uh, go ahead, Brian. God delivered you. God forgives you. The problem is a lot of Christians don't forgive you. So that's a problem. And then also in your uh, footnotes, do uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10. That's exactly... I mean, you have it right there. You should, it falls right into what you're talking about. Okay, here it is. Thank God for progressive lenses. <laughs> 2 Corinthians seven ten. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That was Paul's comments about a letter that he wrote to some of the rebellious in Corinth who were in sorrow because of his letter. But repentance, by the way, repentance, because we don't see the invisible church, only God does. There are people who I've known 
heard the testimony from many, many, many people over the last 50 years who said that they were in church, they looked like a Christian, they thought they were a Christian, everybody else thought they were a Christian, and then they were converted and they were shocked to realize they never really knew the Lord because the culture was so much a part of it. And I'm not against having a godly culture. Don't take that away from this. But the, the culture was so Christianized, they literally did not know they weren't born of God. And upon hearing that the wrath of God against sin is real, the blood of atonement is necessary, Christ, God the Son, bore the wrath of God for us, substitutionary atonement, that's why these things need to be preached. God grants repentance to people that we believe are Christian. And God does that. Now, sometimes the word repent is used for a Christian caught in something they know is wrong and has to change. It can be used in that sense too. And the context will make it clear. There are ranges of meaning. But here, this is very clear because they're in bondage to Satan. Rather than speculations of word fights, we did that. Patient instructions, the hope, God grants repentance. Acts 5.31, listen to this. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior, notice this, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That was preached in Acts 5.31, I believe, by Peter. The, the, the one who was at his right hand, that's Christ, he's preaching Christ, uh, Acts 5.31, prince and savior, grant repentance to Israel. We're still waiting for that. Eric's talking about that in eschatology. Some individuals repent before the time, but there's going to be a restoration. By the way, continue to pray for Israel. What we're seeing, Eric, thank you. Last week, you are so, we're so blessed to have you explain to us why these things are like they are. Why are you looking at the news and seeing all this hatred toward Israel, including in our own country? amongst college students because they're angry that God blessed them. goes back to Abram. Okay. Yeah. They, they're, their, anger, their anger against God is palpable. So there it is, Acts 5.31, Acts 11.18. And when they heard this, they quieted down. Remember, God had saved some Gentiles. That's the thing that was shocking. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So this is not some isolated text. The repentance is granted and given. I know that was the case for me, but that was obvious. We know it's the case for Saul of Tarsus. It's obvious from the narrative. In my case, I was railing against Christians when I, moments later, was confessing Christ. Angry, hostile, unbelievably bad attitude guy was converted by the grace of God. That was given. I didn't work it up. I didn't start warming up to it any more than Saul did. Now, the fruit of repentance is knowledge of the truth, leading to the knowledge of the truth. This also is essential. 
And we can see that everywhere. I may have talked about this before. I, I know I have. I talk about it constantly, and Eric does. What about the knowledge of the truth? The thing that's most distressing is when confessed Christians have no concern about the truth. In fact, I have had people say, back, I'm going back to the 80s now, why do you have to always know if everything's true or not? You're always asking, why do you always have to, this, this is true and that's false, or this is true and that's false. Why are you doing that? And there were people angry. Why are you doing that? And when you, when you say some things are false and it puts a death pall right over, is that the right word? Right over the whole church. Our worship is tamped down. The joy goes away because we know somebody's a- asking whether everything's true or not. The implication was if you just accept everything that comes under Christian uh, teaching and, and, and people are happy and they got great music and everything's going wonderful, then that's all you need. Why are you asking all these questions? Now people are afraid to come to church. They might say, you might say something was wrong. You can't do that. Accept it all. Well, then, and that was kind of a strong argument in the 80s, and I had to say, well, the same Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth, who gives us joy and hope and rejoicing and encouragement is the Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth. You can't set some gifts and some attributes of God over against other ones. And now it may be true that sociologically, and this is me thinking now, I wasn't that sophisticated back then, but sociologically you could say, yes, people will feel freer in their worship services. Nobody ever asks any questions about whether the words are biblical or not. In other words, if the skill of the musicians and the enthusiasm of the group coalesce together and there's just glorious excitement, uh, that would certainly be, for many people, a more pleasant experience than someone saying, we have to filter this, whether it's true or not, before we sing it. And we have to ask some questions about whether it's honoring to God, whether it's biblical, and so on. But uh, as it is, most, much, much of the new popular music comes from the New Apostolic Reformation. So it comes from false apostles. Very talented. You can't doubt the talent and the creativity. It's just amazing talent, creativity, all kinds of different instruments. And you could say, they could just say, well, because you don't know how to make music, you're just sour grapes. You're right. I don't know how to make music. I know how to play it. But that's a false dilemma. You don't have to accept kingdom now, uh, dominionism, you know, all of the new apostolic reformation in order to have music that's glorifying to God and also well done. Now, you only need to do what you have with who the Lord gives. If you have a guitar and somebody can sing on tune, that's music. If you have more, that's music too. But the false dilemma was you got to accept this whole thing or we won't have the Holy Spirit will leave because our music isn't good enough. 
Well, I couldn't make that decision. I had to stick with teaching the Bible. And I don't believe the Holy Spirit is ever grieved by the gospel. How could the Spirit of God be grieved by the gospel being preached? That's absurd. Well, you quench the Spirit by preaching Christ in the gospel? How could you say that? Well, they do. So I'm rehearsing kind of what I went through. But nothing can dissuade us from preaching the gospel. Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached. We can have joy over the forgiveness of sins, even in the midst of our sorrow over being in this fallen world. I have to admit, I have as much sorrow as anything else right now over the state of our beautiful, wonderful daughter who was my main co-worker in the ministry as far as critical issues. I can't fix that. I can pray, I can love, I can bring food, and, and you bring food, God bless you, and cards come. I can't fix it. Christians have sorrow too. But nothing can dissuade us from the knowledge of the truth and the wonderful truth of redemption and atonement. Nothing can get us to not believe the truth of the gospel. No sorrow, no hardship is worth giving up our eternal hope over because these things are temporary and God does things we don't expect. So I'm thanking him for those 13 years and the last thing on my mind is uh, addiction right now. Um, Thankfully, I'm totally free. Now, Prudent repentance is knowledge of the truth. Uh, let me give you a couple of verses and we'll get to the next slide. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Desires is thalo, one of the words for will. Knowledge is epigenosis, which would be an intensive of knowledge. God wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So herein is what will be seen as a major dilemma or antinomy. What would you call it? Antinomy? What's a two things that can't fit together, Eric? Paradox? Yeah, paradox. There's another word for it. I I shouldn't use words I don't know. I used to know it. (laughs) Two things that don't go together. Anyhow. So one of two things are going to happen. We're going to take the whole counsel of God and see if there's a reasonable way to maintain what is said about granting repentance and what is said about God's desiring all to be saved. Even if someone would say, okay, you guys are all right. God gave, already gave grace to everybody. There's nothing more needed in the person to add their part to it to actualize the little part that you have to add to it, even though I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But it doesn't this verse here say, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Desires a thalo. Now, what would that entail? How could we have a biblical view of that without doing a just irrational contradiction. Well, I th- I don't, I th- it's a lot easier to just take the universal call, um, providence, 
the universal love of God and the patience of God as evidence of God's patience with sinners that he allows those who blaspheme him and hate him to enjoy his green earth. They, like, you can blaspheme and, God forbid, not legally, but possibly by human ability. The human can blaspheme a lot. And they can curse God. And they can say evil things. And God continues to allow everyone to breathe his air and to live and enjoy his green earth and see the same, same leaves turn. They're beautiful right now. And so on. So I would take wills, meaning God's general intent that people would come to him and have time to do so. But it's not a decree that decrees all will be saved. If it were, you would have universalism. So even those who disagree strongly that God grants repentance and say that he already did, we just need to do our part, are not generally universalists. And so there you still have people lost either way. And in the end, the names in the book of life are still the same people. So given that reality and given God's universal love and given God's patience and mercy and the fact that he allows us to breathe his air and live on his earth and enjoy the pleasures that he grants people on this earth in a general way is not a reason to say God never actually decreed that anybody be saved or he never actually chose anyone because that is uh, contradicted by the evidence we have, including his appearance to Abram and Ur of the Chaldees and promising him to make him a people and to bless those who would bless Abram. And we see that playing out in history even as we look right now. The virulent hatred toward Israel is grounded in God's favor toward Abram, Abraham, and so on. And so if some do escape from the snare of Satan, do come to faith by God granting it, that's an act of mercy, not giving them what they deserve. If people continue to blaspheme because that's what they prefer to do or just neglect the salvation, they're doing what they want to do too. Nobody's being violated by God. And so this desire is for people to turn to Christ, and I will preach that. Eric and I and the other teachers here, we preach the universal call week after week after week. Come unto me, Jesus, and all your weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so that's true. So we accept that. Um, I, I just feel bad that people, after 30, 40 years, will not give up their anger and hatred against the doctrine of election. They'll never give it up. The only one that will correct them is God in heaven, and so be it. But you're not doing yourself any favors by being that way. And you're not helping the gospel either.
Yes. I've had conversations with people, and I've asked them, well, what percentage of salvation is of you, and what percentage is of God? And oftentimes I'll hear, oh, 99% God and 1% me. If you believe, if a person believes that they are saved as an act of their own free will because they made that choice or they accepted Christ, is that saving faith? Well, that's, if the person is confessing Christ and serving Christ, I'm not one to say they don't have it. They don't have saving faith. I can't say that. But I would say that sometimes you need to learn the way of the Lord more perfectly. Here's another thing. There are, so, then Luann wants to say something. I'm going to get her to mic. Um, let me give the 30, what do they say now? 30,000 foot view. If you want to see the 30,000 foot view, what I hear on the scene of history and interaction is the assumption that if you believe in election, then you believe in everything John Calvin and his followers ever did on the face of the earth. And I grew up in Dutch Reformed, Northwest Iowa, uh, which was the Calvinism of John Calvin is social, not just theological. And they believed in that the church is Israel, that you need to force all the sinners to obey Christ whether they want to or not, take over the government. They had the Netherlands reformed. You do it our way or else. If you are caught buying gas on Sunday, you will be subject to being corrected by the elders and you better repent. So on and so forth. Now that whole Calvin, Geneva, what happened there, the 30 years war, the dividing up of nations, forcing people to do it, that's in people's mind. There's my 30,000 foot view. And so when you say God grants repentance, they go, Calvin, Calvin, Calvin's evil. Calvin drowns Anabaptists. Where did that come from? It doesn't come from scripture alone. It comes from church history. Okay, dear ones, don't get your theology from church history. Get it from scripture alone. There's fallen sinners who taught just about any theology. Okay, I can't say everyone who believes in free will got their doctrine from Rick Warren or whatever from Robert Schuller. Yes, Luann. Yeah, I was just going to say that we know that uh, the Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And another devastating teaching, besides just the we do it, is the teaching that repentance is a work because it's Christ alone. And so if you say, talk about repentance, now you're talking about a work. And so, you know, people in false teachings like this, you know, they do get pigeonholed because the people who want to say, well, I did it, I, you know, I repented, um, then they hear the teacher who says, well, if if you have to repent, then it's a work, you know? So it's a lot of confusion instead of like you're talking about um, going by just what scripture says, because in the next verse, it's gonna talk about escaping the snare of Satan. Right, it's grand, thank you, Luann, good point. So the easy believe in ism is out there too. Sign the card, raise your hand, you're saved. That's repenting, even if nothing ever changes, yes. Brother. 
Yeah, Bob, earlier you, you'd made a statement about uh, the enthusiasm and the excitement of all the music and the, and the worship services, and, and I think you used the, the adverb or the adjective glorious. I'm thinking that sometimes we're guilty of being absor uh, absorbing the attitude of the culture around us. And this emotionalism experience of much of modern Christianity is called glorious. But I think they lose a little a bit of the value of what glory is when you think of Paul himself saying, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. Yeah. Glorious isn't always fun and pleasurable, but glorious is truthful, and it encompasses all of God. Well, a lot of the teaching out there is that you, there's a technique to get the glory to come down. Okay, the glory comes down. Well, that, that again is a misunderstanding of, of glory and its full orbed doctrine. Um, the full glory is, is not until eternity when we have our glorified bodies. We couldn't stand it if it did come in the fullness of God's glory. There'd be a lot of piles of ashes on chairs. <laughs> if anyone didn't know. What did, what, did they, what did Peter say? Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Yeah. Well, anyhow, go ahead. I was going to just mention in that uh, First Timothy 2 passage where it talks about he desires not all, or he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The all there could also represent all kinds of people. Yes. Without exception, I should say, without distinction, not every single human being. The reason I make that reading in context, notice uh, 1 Timothy 2.1. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Then he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So, in other words, it's not just for the lowly. It's for those kinds of people, too. It's for the kings. And then later, if you notice down in verse uh, 7, he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. So it's not just the Jews, it's Gentiles. It's not just the common folk, it's the kings. It's all kinds of people. So it's not every single human being without exception, without exception but it's all kinds of people without distinction. distinction. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with you, and uh, that's how I read it. But if you tell an Arminian that, they go, they're not very happy. Right. What, what the, the response is, you're playing fast and loose with it because you don't want to accept what it says. But, but that's not the case. The context says that. Even if we go back to what was said by, in Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Well, how much of Israel repented and received forgiveness of sins? Most did not. So I don't think we're causing any problems. Your reading is the correct one. But when people have emotional response to things, and I, maybe it's not just emotional, maybe it's rational, but it doesn't fit with the text. Amen. We often teach people rightly to read in context. The immediate context is always the most important. Yeah. So think of concentric circles. Always stay within the first few verses and then start branching out. And as you see in the immediate context, it's all sorts of different kinds of people right. is the issue. God is the gl most glorified when there's representatives from all the tribes of the earth in heaven, 
glorifying him before the throne in eternity. All sorts of people from everywhere and every tribe. Because no matter, if you try to make it seem fair, you still end up in a quagmire. Fair to man. Because how many people lived and died for thousands and thousands of years in remote places where nobody ever heard any religion or just paganism? Uh, so we can't force God's ways into what we want it to be. But your reading is correct. I totally agree with you. But I also believe that God is universally loving because of his forbearance yes. toward blasphemous sinners. Amen. And so we're not... So somebody said, oh, so your teaching is God so loved the elect. That's what I've heard. Well, no, God's universal love is obvious because we're not a pile of ashes. With that being said, Bob, ultimately, ultimately God's choices are determined by his sovereign, eternal purpose, not yes. his desires. Yes, and that's what the Bible says. Eric and I are very careful, though we cite scholars. We try to cite scholars that are contemporary that have, it's only that recently, was pretty universally acknowledged by anybody close to conservative that the author's meaning is the God's meaning. Okay? Now who agrees with what sectarian view? So we're continually consulting people to help us understand the author's meaning and preaching directly from Scripture. We're not citing the traditions of some group. Although many traditions are correct and could be cited, I'm looking for who helps, helps me understand the Bible. Because the Bible is timeless. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of resources. We don't have to say, well, I'm Lutheran, so I only consult Lutheran theology when I study. I, I can't do that. Because Luther didn't have the right reading of everything. So we need to consult the text itself. Um, so repentance, we got to get to the slide. We'll pick it up next week because I, I got to tell you about something. There's a, um, let's finish this one and I'll lay out. This is revolutionary here. It, it was for me. It got me out of what I did for 10, for 10 years. Okay. And went to Bible teaching instead. Okay. So what happens when God grants repentance? And they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now look at that. Just let that have an impact on you for what it says. I can break it all out from the Greek, and I'm prepared to do so. But just let that have an impact. It did. When I read that one time, in somewhere in the 80s, that just hit me between the eyes, and I knew immediately I've been doing the wrong thing for some many years, and I've got to change. I'm not doing what I should. I'm trying to get the demons out of people and find an inner healing theory or tell people do this and don't do that, sort of manage the sinner so they don't have so many bad outcomes. But when I saw this, said, I've got to change. I'm going to teach the Bible. 
gently correcting those who are in opposition. Perhaps God will grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And if they escape from the snare of the devil, come to their senses, that's the outcome we're looking for. It doesn't happen because somebody was watching baseball and they see a sign, he gets us. That doesn't do it. God does it. And the clearer the truth is presented, the more powerful it is when the change happens. And you won't miss it. It'll be life-changing. It'll be profound. It'll be permanent. Does it mean Christians never get into bondage? Yes, Christians get into bondage. But we don't want to be that. That's not where we want to be. And we know who to cry out to. We know where to go to get help. The throne of grace. Now, in that regard. Um, let me give a little bit of preview for next week. Some of my points here. Escape from the devil's bondage comes through repentance. Remember, repentance is granted, but he uses means. Gently teaching the truth. That's the means. You got to treat correct using the truth. Two, repentance is granted by God through the means of patient correction, through the word. Three, repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth, which sets people free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When Jesus announced that in John chapter 8, his critics ended up telling him he had a devil. And Jesus ended up telling them, you are of your father the devil. They were the good religious people. We're happy that he gets us. Or they made a religious commitment. But they became hostile to Jesus Christ when he told them, if you continue in my word, you'll be disciples indeed. And you'll be set free. John 8, I think 32, 31, 32, thereabouts. Discipleship wasn't what they're interested in because they said, we're Abraham's children. You are offending us by telling us we're not free. The national pride was more important than the freedom of Messiah, the promised one. Abraham spoke of me, Jesus said. If you loved Abraham, you'd come to me. Abraham spoke of me. They didn't want to hear that. Dear ones, the way of freedom is domain transfer. Those who, if you haven't read this before, I wrote an article on this that I end up recommending to many dozens of people who contact me through CIC wanting deliverance. So I wrote this article that summarizes basically all that I'm talking about here. Two domain theology, how we escape Satan's dominion. Then um, the text here under the title is Acts 26, 18 to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, turn, by the way, synonymous with repent, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. An inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Acts 26, 18, spoken by Paul as having been told him by Jesus when he was before Agrippa, Paul told this. And then 
I lay this out and I go through many other texts, including in John 12, 1 Peter 2, uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, um, Luke 10, Luke 4, 18, it's important, Luke 17, 1 John 5, 18 and 19. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 18 and 19. I'll give you a summary. Uh, Christy printed a few of these, I think, if somebody's interested or if you haven't already had it or read it. Here's a summary. It's called Two Domain Theology, How We Escape Satan's Dominion, CIC, Winter 2017, issue number 134. You can find it on the web on CICMinistry.org. This is a summary of a whole bunch of other articles I wrote on deliverance and inner healing. It finally comes down to the simple thing. Um, the territory, the domain, is not geographical, it's relational. Get that right. Not geographical, it's relational. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Is there an airplane ticket that'll get you somewhere that that can't be said about? If you were in the, if you were in the North Pole, would Satan have no power over you? No. It's relational. You don't travel anywhere. You're right where you were before when you escaped that domain. You come from being under darkness, under bondage, alienated from God, without hope, without Christ in the world. Repentance through the gospel puts you in exact same location, now under Christ, full of hope and joy, forgiven, redeemed, transferred, and part of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter where you are on planet Earth. It's relational, not geographical. And so that's all in here, two-domain theology. And this is an outcome from this previous study that I did here. And uh, I have a bunch more verses. We'll cover that. If you've never read that, there's a few of them here. Um, feel free to take one. I hope that this sinks in. I, I, you will never be harmed by believing what God said. And we're willing to be corrected if we get, get some point seriously wrong. But I don't think in this case that's what's happening. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, kindness. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Israel. We're under horrible attack. People are hostages. May they be freed. And Lord, I pray for Eric as he preaches the word of God to us. May you give him boldness and clarity and give us hearts that are tender to the truth and willing to hear. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. And we do pray for Jessica Kramus that you bring healing to her as she's suffering so much. Thank you, Lord, for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.